episode seven of Forensic Finds. Thank you for coming and joining us today. If it is your first time tuning in to Forensic Minds, we are a podcast aimed at those studying to be forensic psychologists, early career forensic psychologists, or for those that are just curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I am recording today, and you are very kindly listening. I acknowledge that this land is not my own, it never will be, and it will forever belong to the traditional custodians. Today we have one jam-packed episode. We are going to be talking to Dr. Amanda White about all things forensic and clinical neuropsychology. So let me introduce Amanda first. Dr. White is a duly trained, qualified and endorsed forensic psychologist and clinical neuropsychologist. Her highly specialised training allows her to combine clinical and forensic expertise to provide comprehensive assessments and expert reports that address both clinical and diagnostic questions, as well as forensic issues. Her PhD investigated the role of cognition in fitness to stand trial assessments, and she has several publications in this area. She has expertise in assessing clients with a wide range of conditions, including acquired brain injury, neurological conditions and mental health disorders. She has gained well-rounded and diverse practice and experience working across sectors, including hospitals, custodial environments, corporations and organisations and private business. Currently, Dr. White works predominantly in private practice, providing independent expert reports for a variety of courts and tribunals. She has expertise in both criminal and civil matters. She holds various teaching positions and regularly provides education and training and supervision in this space. She is also a reviewer for several journals. And I am very lucky to be the one that gets to interview Amanda today. So to introduce myself, my name is Madison Riachi and I am a current doctoral candidate completing my Doctor of Psychology in Clinical and Forensic at Swinburne University and the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science. I completed my Bachelor of Psychological Science with first class honours at the University of Queensland and worked as an advanced child protection practitioner for the Victorian Government before commencing my postgraduate studies. Over the course of my doctorate, I've gained experience in several specialist forensic and clinical services, including Gatehouse at the Royal Children's Hospital, various forensic care settings, the Youth Forensic Specialist Service and the Alfred Child and Youth Mental Health Service. My doctoral thesis investigates the mental health and mental health service utilisation of users and victims of youth family violence and I hold additional research interests in youth offending, child and youth forensic mental health and child maltreatment. I'm currently employed as a senior child counsellor at the Australian Childhood Foundation conducting individual and group therapy with young people using violence in the home. I'm also the National Student Representative on the Australian Psychological Society College of Forensic Psychologists Committee and, of course, one of the co-hosts of the podcast you are currently listening to. Now, I've done more than enough talking, so let's get into the podcast. Well, thanks for joining today in the middle of what is a really um, kind of chaotic time. So we really appreciate you coming and sitting with us, Amanda. Thank you. No problem. 
So I guess to begin with, um, having read through your bio just before, you have extensive experience and you're kind of a very special forensic psychologist being both forensically endorsed and having the clinical neuropsychology endorsement as well. So I guess some people might be joining for the first time today. Can you, in your own words, I guess, explain what is forensic psychology and then what is clinical neuropsychology? Sure. So um, I guess that's a good question to start with because clinical neuropsychology and forensic psychology are both uh, not as commonly well known as um, psychology in general and, of course, clinical psychology. Um, they're both separate areas of endorsement um, and that basically means that the psychologist has completed an approved postgraduate qualification um, and has undergone supervised training in that area of practice. And then upon completion of that degree and a period of um, in the registrar program, they can then use that title under the area of endorsement scheme operated by APRA. So they each represent one of the nine areas uh, that are currently recognised. And forensic psychology, as has been discussed throughout the podcast, and I have been listening, it's been very good, um, is essentially involves the study and application of psychological theory and skills to understand um, the functioning of the legal and criminal justice system. I remember very distinctly in one of my very first classes in my forensic master's program, a professor said that forensic psychology is about psychology of the law, in the law, and the law. I think it was from a textbook by, um, who was it? Maybe Bartle and Bartle, but I've never forgotten this. And I think for me, it really captures the diversity and broad reach of forensic psychology, that it spans practice, research and policy. So forensic psychologists, as we've been learning about, often work in a variety of settings across criminal, civil and forensic, uh, sorry, family legal contexts. And they provide services for a range of groups from perpetrators to victims, um, those working in the criminal justice system and the legal system at large. And forensic psychology really encompasses issue, issues such as the causes, uh, risk prevention and treatment of deviant or criminal behaviour. And it seeks to provide the court with information to assist in their decision making, for example, risk of reoffending. But more broadly than that, it also investigates the psychology of the courts and the correctional system and the police. and it, it has contributions of psychological evidence to the legal proceedings as well as policy decisions. So that for me is my uh, nutshell explanation of forensic psychology. And then you asked about clinical neuropsychology as well. So clinical neuropsychology or clinical neuropsychologists specialise in human thinking, emotion and behaviour. So that expert knowledge of brain and behaviour relationships and the use of cognitive assessment measures to evaluate cognitive skills and brain functioning. So in the training phase, you're getting extra or additional training in areas like neuroanatomy, cognitive neuroscience, conditions and disorders that impact um, the brain and the central nervous system. 
So it provides a deeper understanding about brain function and dysfunction and how this relates to a person's thinking and behaviour. Um, so clinical neuropsychology typically involves the use of psychometric assessment tools to evaluate a range of cognitive or thinking skills. So things like memory, attention, problem solving, uh, and higher order thinking skills. Um, and then we use that in conjunction with clinical interview and collateral sources of information. So clinical neuropsychologists can be involved in evaluating thinking skills, quantifying these and providing an opinion as it relates to a particular diagnosis. So for example, is there an organic basis for the client's presentation or is it purely psychological? If it is organic, what might the cause be? And how can this inform management and treatment options? Um, so they're working closely with uh, other allied health professionals, so speech paths, occupational therapists, um, in relation to functional abilities and rehabilitation from an injury or illness perspective, as opposed to for forensic psychologists that offending um, offending behaviour. Great. That was a very comprehensive summary. Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> Sorry, Maddie. <laughs> no, no, no. It was great. I think um, I really liked, I guess, the initial um, taking it back to your um, master's degree in that summary that was very concise um, and clear in terms of forensic psychology. And it's just interesting for me to hear about clinical neuropsychology. That's an area that obviously I don't know a lot about at all. So thank you so much for explaining that. And I guess in terms of the training that you've gone through um, with forensic and then clinical neuropsychology, how did you, I guess, get to where you are in terms of your study pathway and then afterwards? Yeah, so um, like most undergrads, when I was studying uh, my Bachelor of Psychology degree, I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to be. And then towards the end of honours, um, someone comes around and gives you a quick brief chat about all the different options you've got available to you. And you go, that sounds really interesting. That sounds great. And these were the two core areas that I was attracted to and drawn to. Um, and so like most students, I applied to, to both. Um, and I was fortunate to be offered a place in both. And I was a little bit torn, but I chose forensics. So I did my master's of forensic psychology at the University of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. um, and I must say at the time, I didn't know if I'd go back and do neuropsychology. It wasn't always the set plan, um, but I knew that I had an interest in both. So when I started to do my forensic master's and particularly on placements when I was conducting assessments, which was a really strong area of interest of mine, mm -hmm. I found that I wanted to understand more about the impact of organic brain conditions. So, um, for example, we know that there are elevated rates of traumatic brain injury in the custody setting um, relative to the general population, and which is, by comparison, it's exceptionally high. Mm. Uh, I think the latest stats, depending on which paper you look at, they vary wildly, but it's in the vicinity of anywhere between 40 and 90%, depending on how it's measured. Oh, wow. um, and I think in the New South Wales, the New South Wales, because that's where I'm based, prisoners survey, um, it was over, it's been over 30% in the last couple of surveys who have had a head injury with the loss of consciousness. So I really wanted to understand this more and be able to recognise when might it be relevant, um, how can I assess this and explain it? So um, 
I, and not many people had the dual training at the time that I, I'd gone through, but I did feel it was an area of great need and something I was passionate about. So after completing my forensic masters, um, I decided, well, let's just continue on this train journey of learning. And the only way to do it at the time was to go to another university, Macquarie University, and do the Masters of Clinical Neuropsychology there. Um, and so I did that, trying to learn about um, the different dis brain dis like disorders that can affect the brain, um, did all my placements there. And the way I found to combine the two was I did my research PhD um, in the area of forensic neuropsychology. So I specifically looked at the role of cognition in fitness to stand trial assessments. So whilst I was doing my clinical neuro degree, I was still trying to um, work the two and meld them together to do what I wanted to do. Um, and I simultaneously worked as a forensic psychologist throughout and kind of fitted that around all my placements and requirements for the neuropsych degree. That's um, incredibly impressive. And I could imagine you would have been extremely busy trying to fit all of that in. Um, but just goes to show, sounds like you really followed your passion and it certainly paid off. Yeah, and look, you know, I, I have to say for a period towards the back end, I did go part-time um, because I did want to juggle both practice and study at the same time. Um, and initially I was like, I just want to get it done. But um, then I became so immersed in what I was doing and wanted to really give that the time that it deserved. And so that meant going part-time. And at the time I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to be retiring before I finish. But <laughs> in hindsight, it was a very short period of time and I know that's hard when you're living it day to day but it was. I think that's uh, something I needed to hear personally so thanks Amanda. <laughs> um, and I guess in talking about forensic psychology and then clinical neuropsychology I know you've been really fortunate to have combined the two of them so I'm not sure if this question might be a bit difficult but can you talk a little bit about the similarities between the two and then the differences? Yeah, sure. And it is it is a difficult question because I do blend the two, but I do still think that they've got two unique skill sets. So um, in terms of the similarities, of course, they're both sub-disciplines or areas of psychology, as we discussed before. So they both use the knowledge and skills gained um, in psychology training in general um, in, in relation to the study of human behaviour. And both meet core competency competencies as a reg, as a registered psychologist so in terms of um, practical and theoretical knowledge um, ethical and professional standards communication skills and understanding um, behavior they're both scientifically based um, and based on um, best practice approaches and they've got high quality training in assessment, including interviewing, psychological tests. And a similarity, which I'd be happy to say it wasn't there, but I guess it's in the amount of time um, spent report writing. So that's such a big component, uh, I find, at least in what I do um, for both disciplines. Um, but you also asked about differences. So... I think some of the differences, of course, some of the skills and training that we touched on before, but also things like the purpose of the assessment. So what are the referrals coming through? What are the types of questions that are asked? 
Is it something to do with causation versus diagnosis? Um, and who is the client? Is it the court or is it the patient? Uh, the approach is different. So the theoretical models that are driving um, your assessment and understanding of the case. Um, of course, in forensic psychology, we're working within that legal framework. We've got that legal criteria for the standards of evidence, whereas in clinical neuropsychology, it's often from a clinical approach and it's generally written for clinical purposes. Um, there's, although we both uh, have ethical considerations, they can differ across the two settings. So things, for example, the first one that comes to mind is something like confidentiality. So often in clinical neuropsychology, um, there are there's confidentiality which can be maintained to a different degree than can be in forensic psychology where the confidentiality is quite limited. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of execution of the assessment, how and, and where we do that might differ. Um, the types of testing differs. So in neuropsychology, it's typically focused on psychometric uh, assessment tools. And in forensic psychology, you're also drawing upon things like structured professional judgment tools. Um, and then I guess that flows through to things like the report structure. So how we frame the report um, and comes back to what referral questions we're addressing. Great. Thank you for that summary. <laughs> Um, and I guess in terms of your work, because I know you're mainly in private practice at the moment, do you see, yeah. um, I guess, both? So seeing forensic clients and then seeing purely um, your clinical clients? Yeah, I do. So I, I do see a mixture of both. Um, predominantly, I would say they're forensic, but mm -hmm. I do definitely see some clinical clients, yes. Yeah, okay. And I guess... In terms of um, the work that you, I guess, combined the two, how have you found your knowledge of both areas um, is able to inform your work? Mm. Um, I think overall it just gives me a greater depth of knowledge to draw from in terms of understanding a person's behaviour and their driving factors. So... Uh, understanding about the range of possible underlying factors which might influence their behaviour, whether it be dementia, traumatic brain injury, and the myriad ways these can impact on offending behaviour that might otherwise be overlooked or perhaps not as comprehensively explained or evaluated as they could be. So um, I find that the neuropsychological training allows me to be able to communicate this knowledge in a meaningful and powerful way applying that sense of objectivity from the testing methods in combination with the scientific backing um, i guess it also informs questions around causation for example in the civil arena workers compensation claims that chicken or the egg type scenario questions and then I guess it flows through to informing recommendations and treatment considerations. So, for example, if you've got an offender working in a group treatment setting and the feedback is that there's a degree of non-compliance or disengagement, um, but then we get them in for assessment and, and utilising that neuropsych stuff and we find that they've got an undiagnosed neurodevelopmental mm. disorder, which is impacting their ability to engage with retain or implement some of the strategies that are being discussed in the group setting 
So we can then inform that and then find a more tailored approach to assist that client. Um, and I guess leading on from that too is about what's realistic for that particular client uh, in terms of their capacity. So if you've got a client, for example, with an extreme traumatic brain injury, um, a particular round of CBT treatment might not be the most appropriate we might have to scale it back and focus on those more behavioral um, aspects so there's kind of some of the things that I can think about um, another one would be in my area of research which was fitness to stand trial so looking at what modifications can be made um, assuming that they can be accommodated by the court to facilitate a fair trial for that particular individual do you feel like in your experience in the realm of forensic psychology and assessing people that come to you for various um, reasons that a lot of the time, um, I guess, these neurodevelopmental or um, any other kind of neuropsychological disorders are being missed? I think, and it, I must say, early on in my career, I found it really surprising, but I think I've got used to it now is that assumption that, well, they finished school, so they must be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we speak to them and that really doesn't mean very much. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah, I completed year 10, I got my certificate, yep. And then you find out a bit more, well, they only attended for about 10 days each term and they really just wanted to get me through. And so, you know, I, I got a bit of help along the way and, yeah, yeah, I, 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 but I completed it, I've got my certificate. And then you look back and you realise that that, that doesn't quite reflect um, their experience or their ability level. So delving deeper is always important. And I, I yeah, I do think that they're often missed, particularly in the forensic group and clients, mm-hmm. because often they come with uh, behavioural issues as well. So everything's put down to behaviour. Everything's just because they're a bad egg or a bad seed or that they're a, they're a naughty kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look a little bit deeper, sometimes not the whole explanation for the behaviour, but in part it might be because they've had difficulties learning, which therefore prompts that level of disengagement. When you're disengaged and bored as a, as a you know young youth, what might you do? You might start to go, well, I don't really want to be here or act back in a defensive mechanism to protect yourself from others knowing what's really going on for you. So it's easier for me to misbehave and for them to think that I'm just naughty rather than stupid and and that's that would be their words not mine but Mm. that kind of understanding yeah yeah um well the work you're doing is definitely um adds so much value to the lives of these people then because I could imagine some people wouldn't get these assessments and this kind of assistance and then they could go on for the rest of their lives not being completely understood um which is incredibly damaging so and I guess in thinking about Um, your work and your experience probably more in the forensic psychology um, realm given that uh, that's what this podcast is aimed at I'm guessing Mm -hmm. what has been your most challenging moment or feel free to share multiple I'm sure there are multiple for everyone (laughs) yeah um, that's a really tricky question I think to pinpoint one but I would say that there are challenges at every level whether it be a personal learning and growth level whether it be with a particular client and more broadly at a system level I think there are challenges everywhere Um, (laughs) 
from a personal level, one of the challenges I think um, is early on in my training career, I found it really challenging if I couldn't answer a question. So you get a particular referral, is this X or Y? And I'm not sure. Mm. Um, And I had to learn that sometimes it's okay to not know and to just give my best opinion, whatever that might be. Um, And that even if it is the case that I can't provide a definitive answer to the question, there's still a lot of valuable information I can provide. Mm. And I think one thing that helped me with that particular challenge was having an understanding which I kind of got along the way early on that most of the time in the forensic setting, um, we're providing one piece of the puzzle or one piece of important evidence, but we're rarely the only one. Mm. So in a court matter, for example, the judge will have much more information available to them to make a decision that we're not necessarily privy to. And I guess the other thing is that sometimes we just don't know or we don't have enough information. Um, And I I ask for it all the time, but um, there's that understanding that it's not necessarily going to come. At a client level, uh, look, every client's different and comes with challenges. I I recall one time when I was um, early on in my career when I was assessing an inmate at a correctional facility and I was administering an intellectual assessment tool and we have these little little blocks. Um, mm-hmm. I never really considered the, that they would be a weapon. Oh. Um, but <laughs> I was seeing an individual who had that mentality that we spoke about. So everyone thought I'm stupid my whole life, um, saw the assessment as a very confronting process mm-hmm. because it was really exposing for him some of his vulnerabilities. And I don't think I fully appreciated how much that was getting to him. And I really wanted to get the assessment done. And I, and he didn't really verbalise it, but um, perhaps, you know, there was some more cues there that I missed, but he just ended up launching the blocks at me across the table and stood up. And he was a very big guy um, with a really presence about him yeah. um, and he was frustrated and angry and I'd obviously hit his his um, threshold in terms of his level of frustration and and he just had a, a, an anger outburst and that just reminded me um, of always being vigilant about what we're doing um, the importance of what we're doing um, safety as well but I think that one stuck in my mind because that was one that I really, I remember going back to the car and ringing a colleague and saying, I've just had this really mm. frightening experience for myself. Um, I guess that's one that I can think of. I think another challenge, and particularly when I am combining the two, is working with language barriers. So interpreter services, for example. Um, and I feel that's almost a skill unto itself to be able to work effectively with an interpreter. And I think one thing I found challenging and had to learn was when to call the assessment as we're not working together, we're not mm. getting the results that we need, so I just need to say stop um, rather than kind of going, oh, I, had to, I wanted to get it done and pushing through and, and then ending up with an assessment where I couldn't make head nor tail of what was going on. Mm. So they're kind of some of the, I guess, client-level um, challenges that I've found along the way. And then, of course, at a system level, 
the thing I find particularly challenging is working with gaps in services for clients who have both clinical and forensic needs Mm. and trying to fulfill meaningful treatment plans for them. I find it really challenging when it seems the broader system wants to only address one or the other. So we only look at the forensic side or we only look at the the diagnosis of the brain injury, for instance. Um, And sometimes one-on-one when we're talking with the people who are making these decisions, we can effectively explain why we need this holistic support Mm -hmm. around the clinical and forensic needs. And that if we're not responsive to both, it's not going to be effective. But sometimes there are constraints which are outside an individual's control and the systems just don't allow for everything to be addressed. And I find that really challenging but frustrating as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, because the individual isn't being addressed as a whole person, is it? It's kind of like, oh, we'll switch into the forensic mode and then we'll we'll switch into the clinical mode and it doesn't necessarily work like that in real life. How do you navigate those difficulties as a clinician? Sometimes, to be honest, it's just a bit of venting, um, <laughs> particularly with the last one. Um, but no, in all seriousness, yes, I vent. But above and beyond that, I think it really hones or brings home for me the importance of every psychologist um, picking up their kind of advocacy sticks and Mm -hmm. talking about what we do the importance of integrated care models um, in us educating those that we speak to about how we can help and the diversity of what we do Um, I think that's I guess one of the main things that we can do when we're bound by um, those kind of systematic level issues from a person in in relation to the personal and client level stuff I think just changing your practice over time. So your practice today won't necessarily be how you practice in five years time. Um, So I'm always really careful with my blocks now um, (laughs) and where I place them on the table. Um, I've developed a protocol for working with interpreters and and my own threshold as to is it working or not. Um, And I guess writing reports and communicating information in a way whereby the reader can clearly see the links between, for example, the brain functioning and behaviour. And then me having to be a bit more adaptive and learn, well, this is how the system works, for example. Is there a way that we can circumnavigate that to get the result that we're we're looking for? Mm. Being incredibly adaptable and flexible and changing Um, as things do over time and finding your way around things um, is what I'm hearing is a key skill of being a psychologist. (laughs) Noted. Um, All right. And so I guess you've kind of already, we've kind of already spoken about um, the lessons learned from those experiences that which you've just shared. And I guess in us talking about the challenging moments, um, kind of flipping to the other end of the spectrum, um, what do you think are some of the more rewarding moments that you've had in your experience? Um, Look, I find lots of aspects of my work rewarding. Um, I think, and I guess I've really touched on this, or I think it has come through in our interview today, Maddie, that one of the things for me that I find particularly rewarding is being able to draw on my expertise from both fields and combine them to give that comprehensive assessment. and to provide that sense of clarity in what's going on for a person and translating that in a way 
that is meaningful and putting it into a plan to help improve their well-being or community safety. Um, so it's kind of that aha moment mm-hmm. where you're making the connections between, the, you know, to explain the behaviour. And I guess communicating that, so telling a client, your brain works in this way, therefore when you act in this way, this is what's going on. And they, there's kind of like, ah, okay. So that's why I never got that. Well, that's mm-hmm. why I'm having trouble taking on board what I'm what they're talking about in the group setting or whatever it might be. Um, and I think beyond that, something I find rewarding is being able to share knowledge and expertise with others. So whether that be other psychologists, um, lawyers, other professionals, and just giving back. So teaching, doing workshops, and of course, supporting the next generation of psychologists <laughs> that are coming through. Yes, thank you. Well, you're definitely doing that now. (laughs) Um, And in terms of, uh, so it sounds like assessments are really for you um, the key area of interest, which you've said right um, through the podcast. Um, And I guess that kind of aha moment, is there a certain time that you reflect back on or a certain client that you've helped in an assessment where they have had that aha moment and it's just like, wow, this person gets me and they've been able to explain what I have felt like I've been missing for most of my life up until this point? Yeah, there's a few. Um, One that stands out in my mind is it's a case of a young man. He'd probably be in his late 20s and he'd been seen by so many experts over the years. Um, He'd been in and out of custody, relatively minor offences, um, but didn't show a lot of foreplanning or thought in those offences. But he'd seen a number of psychiatrists and neurosurgeons, psychologists, um, and none of the assessments had kind of considered everything. So he had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, um, a childhood traumatic brain injury, a long-standing history of substance abuse, a range of psychological factors and traumas, and then he had this offending behaviour. And so I think, and I was working, I should say that I was working with a really diligent lawyer on this matter, which can make the world of difference because when I asked for information, they went to the lengths to get what I needed to finally consider everything and put it together. Um, And I really felt that I was able to draw my skills and to combine all the information to talk about what was impacting his present today and to weed out some of the stuff that was past but not still current. Mm. Um, And the assessment showed that he had frontal system dysfunction, so he had um, a range of deficits that could lead to emotional disturbances. He had poor problem-solving, decision-making, poor impulse control. Uh, And just discussing in the report what made his um, brain vulnerable to insult and, and the background factors, teasing out what was relevant now versus in the past, as I said. Mm. Um, and just that that comprehensive assessment, that one document, rather than having a whole folder, I think I literally had two briefs, two folders oh, full from the, of material and old records and bits and pieces, but nothing had really cohesively brought everything together. And I think that that report um, just, and having the feedback from, the, which is, not always something that we get but feedback from the lawyer and his family just saying thank you this finally makes sense 
Um, and I think sometimes they'd been misattributing things. So mm. it's all because of, you know, he had that accident when he was nine, when mum wasn't watching and he fell out the window or, you know, and actually just giving them that reassurance that, no, it's not just that, there's all these other things, um, I think was just helpful. Yeah, how, how incredibly um, validating for that person mm. as well, um, that someone's been able to listen, understand and put together all of these different pieces. Um, yeah, I can see why that's incredibly rewarding. <laughs> yeah. um, and I guess in terms of now shifting to um, people who perhaps want to follow in the same path as you um, and become forensic psychologists and perhaps also have that dual endorsement as a clinical neuropsychologist, um, I guess how does the reality of actually working as a psychologist in these two areas differ from any initial expectations of people who are perhaps thinking about getting into it? Mm. Um, look, I think it is what I expected, but I would say that it's also so much more. Mm. So I think I didn't really realise the endless potential um, and the diversity of the career that you can have. Um, and that's just with one area of specialty, let alone the two. Yeah. So um, I think, yeah, the field is constantly changing. So what we can do, how we work, it's constantly developing as we learn more and hence the opportunities keep opening and expanding. So like, for example, at the moment, of course, we've got the changing landscape of psychology with in response to COVID um, and this massive shift towards telehealth that's been experienced by the entire workforce mm. and inclusive of forensic and clinical neuropsychology. So the reality of today isn't necessarily the reality of tomorrow. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of getting off track a little bit, but I think, um, yeah, it does meet expectations, but then they'll change as the field grows and you grow with it. So um, I would say though that <laughs> for those interested in this career path, there's a lot of time report writing, which I mentioned earlier, um, more so than face, particularly in my role, because I'm primarily assessment based, more so than face-to-face -face time with clients. Um, sometimes I wish this was less. I wish I could just slip the judge a post-it note that says a one line, <laughs> in my opinion, this man is fit. Um, but it's, somehow we haven't got that over the line yet. Um, but yeah, in essence, all in all, to answer your question, Maddie, it is what I expect and I think part of the reason that it is is because I made sure that I really tried to investigate what the past looked like. Mm. So even just last week, for instance, Maddie, I had an honours student, a meeting with an honours student um, who just found, found um, myself and a colleague online and unfortunately my colleague couldn't make the meeting so it was just me, but she just said, I just want to speak to people who do different areas of psychology just so I can understand a bit more about what might be for me. And how can I position myself to end up where I want to be? And we chatted for about 20 to 30 minutes and she'd spoken to a few people and I think that's really wise. Um, and then therefore it will be what you expect it to be because you've got a good understanding of what you're walking into. Yeah, absolutely. Going out, doing your research, talking to people and learning about what you're actually jumping into so you don't get any kind of shock, I guess, when you do start working in the area. Yeah, I mean, there'll always be shocks, but there'll yeah. be minimal shocks compared to um, life-shattering ones. So we're just trying to, you know, make it, it's a bit more in the realms of what you expect. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I guess thinking then uh, kind of along similar lines, going back in time to Amanda just out of her degrees, is there anything that you would have liked to know looking back or are you satisfied with um, how, how you kind of found your way? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question, the crystal ball kind of um, perspective. I don't think I could, I, I don't think I would change anything and it's hard. Like when I look back, there were a few times, I guess, where I could have altered my path and where I ended up by making different choices. And I wonder what that would look like now, whether I'd be doing the same thing or something different. Um, but I guess everyone's personal journey to becoming a forensic psychologist or psychologist in general is unique um, and everything you can frame it in a way that it's a learning experience mm -hmm. it may not be pleasant at the time but with good professional supervision you can see the value in things and extract meaningful um, experiences I guess if we're talking about time one of the things I do think about is not necessarily going back or you know was I satisfied with things but it's something that we constantly ask ourselves, am I satisfied now with what I'm doing and, and can I be doing more with my time? Um, often I think one of the things I struggle with is that I want to do a bit of everything and then mm. it's like, no, no, calm down. There's <laughs> only so many hours in the day and, and days in the week. Um, and so managing those expectations and what we want and what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel you on that. Uh, want to do a million things, but there's only limited time. <laughs> so we've got to put in place boundaries. Um, and I guess in terms of one of the things that you like to do, which is helping mentor the next generations of psychologists, um, happy for you to share anything that you think is important um, for people starting out in their career to know. Any advice? Yeah, I did know you were going to ask me this question because I've noted it's been asked of everyone before <laughs> me. Um, and I tried to think of something profound to say, Maddie, I really did. But um, this is pretty much all I could come up with. I guess what I would say is that if you have a passion for forensic psychology, everything else will fall into place um, and that you don't have to have it figured out at the beginning or even the middle or the end for that matter. Um, it's a long road and it's a rewarding career that awaits you, but there will be bumps along the way. Um, and I think for those who are kind of contemplating um, where they want to be in psychology, and I think one of um, the other guest speakers mentioned this, but I, I completely agree, is that at that phase of life, I think getting as much life experience as you can. Diverse life experience is critical in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um you know, knowing your theories and you can learn about what's in the textbooks, that will happen. But particularly in the forensic space, benefiting from exposure to different environments, different people, different ways of thinking about things. Um, when I've met students, that really stands out to me and I see it as a significant strength. Mm -hmm. um, and I think coupled with that is just being, and this will, I guess, help in this way, is being aware of your own vulnerabilities and experiences and potential biases. So we all have inherent biases, but um, not having that conscious awareness of those. Um, and I guess finally, Maddie, just aligning yourself with people that support and encourage you. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be one person. It can also be at an organisation level. So, for example, the APS College of Forensic Psychologists. Um, being a part of these groups, and I did join when I was a student and have been with them from, from that point onwards, um, has helped me early on in my career um, and it continues to help me today. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Amanda. And we really appreciate hearing from you today. Um, good luck with um, everything ahead and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that concludes episode seven of Forensic Minds. Thank you so much for tuning in and we look forward to bringing you some more quality content next time. Bye.